Welcome to the Veterans for Peace Radio Hour and Podcast on Radio Free Nashville 107.1 and 103.7 and streaming live at RadioFreeNashville.org. It's remarkable to be separated from your loved ones, to go out on deployments where you're told that you are liberating people and they don't want you there. The temperature, the stink, the whole nine yards, you know, what was it all worth? What was it worth it? What was it for? That was Dr. Sam Coleman, researcher, writer, and coordinator of the Veterans for Peace Military Trauma Working Group. And you will hear more from Sam. But first, my name is Jim Wolgamuth, and I'm here with fellow Vietnam veteran Harvey Bennett. We are members of Veterans for Peace. Veterans for Peace is an international organization of military veterans and allies whose collective efforts are to build a culture of peace, humanity, equality, and justice. Just go to veteransforpeace.org. This radio show and podcast is on stations across the country. Thanks to Pacifica Radio Network. We're also on SoundCloud, Anchor Podcast, Spotify, and your phone podcast app. Just search Veterans for Peace. The Veterans for Peace Radio Hour and Radio Free Nashville are supported in part by you, the listener, because it is you that keeps Radio Free Nashville going. And as a result, this radio station is then picked up by the Pacifica Radio Network so that we are heard across the country. So if you think it's important, just go to RadioFreeNashville.org and click on the donate button and keep Harvey and I on the air in every time zone in the U.S. And if you can support the vet, the work of Veterans for Peace, do the same thing. Go to our site, VeteransForPeace.org. Harvey, we got to promote the convention. Oh, yeah, that's coming up pretty the soon. Vet, the Veterans for Peace convention is the 25th, 26th, 27th of mm-hmm. August. And go register by going to VeteransForPeace.org. It does cost, but it's well worth it. And here's You don't why. have to be an actual member, though, do you? you just no. Just a little more. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. And I don't even think it costs a little more, but... Really, um, <laughs> we should we should get a discount. <laughs> you would think, but but anyway, the theme of this year's conference is choose peace, stand up, speak out. And so, I just want to go over some of the uh, the guest speakers, and this is just some of them: Claire Daly, Jeffrey Sachs, Kathy Kelly. They're going to be keynote speakers. Mm-hmm. Uh, beyond that, friend of the show, KJ No. Oh, really? Okay. Friend of the show, Matt Ho. Oh, yeah, he's great. Friend of the show, Ann Wright. Friend and of the I, show. Ann is a close friend of Claire Daly's. I think Matt might be why we got her. <laughs> oh, could be, could be. Uh, friend of the show, Mike Ferner. And beyond that, um, we've got future friends of the show like John LaForge, Marjorie Cohn, Peter Kuznick, Robert Bibar, and and even a high school student named Anaya Butler, who is the leader of the Youth, youth versus the Apocalypse. And so she is going to be um, also speaking. And Mm -hmm. that's just that's just the tip of the iceberg. There's going to be lots more people. Have you signed up for particular workshops, Jim? Not yet. Me either. (laughs) I'm just going to get on and see what's there. And the topics, the topics that we're going to discuss and have presentations on are the rising danger of war in the Pacific in the Asia Pacific, U.S. versus China and North Korea, climate, 
leave no one behind. And I bet you Robert Bouvard will be talking about that since he's involved in um, deported veterans. Ousting U.S. nuclear weapons from Europe. How different our work would be in a democracy. How different our work would be in a democracy. Yeah, it's sad when democracy is aspirational, but it clearly is at this point. So the Veterans for Peace Convention coming to you online, wherever you are on August 25th, 26th, 27th. So go to veteransforpeace.org and sign up. Okay, on with the show. We've been hearing about what's going on in Niger and I'm tr- still trying to figure out who's the good guys here be- yeah. because I don't like the idea of a military coup no matter what. But then when you listen to the people talking, they're talking about, we've got to give our resources back to the people. Now, do I trust the military to do that? No, but you know, it's one of those things where if somebody's saying it, then there has to be something, but uh, you and I couldn't help but remember Patrice Lumumba. Yes. And good gracious, this has been happening for decades that we can remember. Decades that we can remember. That's 60 years, over 60 years. And so I would say it's been happening long before that, but we can just, that's in our lifetime. So, but you had a letter from Patrice Lumumba that you wanted to share because just to let the listeners know how long Hmm. our intervention has been going on because yes. it's clear it's clear when you look at what's going on there it's not about ecowash which is supported by the west it's not about the different countries right there it all harkens back to french and united states intervention well and in in, in Mumba's case it was belgium the belgian congo remember the belgian congo the the congo he was the first democratically elected Prime Minister of Congo in 1960, when there were all these revolutions in the African continent. And he was truly uh, motivated by the best interests of his people, the people of the Congo. And that set him on a a collision course with the Belgian colonialists. And, of course, the U.S. didn't want him setting any examples. So I did come across this letter. Patrice Lumumba's last letter he wrote to his wife. This was at the point where he knew he was targeted and that he probably was not going to survive. In any case, this coup and assassination was always denied by the by the U.S. and uh, they finally admitted it in 2013. So it took a while. <laughs> I think that it became too hard to deny the documentary evidence. So this is uh, from African Archives, and uh, it, it opens, My dear wife, I'm writing these words to you, not knowing whether they will ever reach you or whether I shall be alive when you read them. Throughout my struggle for the independence of our country, I have never doubted the victory of our sacred cause to which I and my comrades have dedicated all our lives. But the only thing which we wanted for our country is the right to be, right to a worthy life, to dignity without pretense and to independence without restrictions. 
This was never the desire of the Belgian colonialists and their Western allies who received direct or indirect, open or concealed support from some highly placed officials of the United Nations, the body upon which we placed all our hope when we appealed to it for help. They seduced some of our compatriots, bought others, and did everything to distort the truth and smear our independence. What I can say is this, alive or dead, free or in jail, it is not a question of me personally. The main thing is the Congo, our unhappy people whose independence is being trampled upon. That is why they have shut us away in prison and why they keep us far away from the people. But my faith remains indestructible. I know and feel deep in my heart that sooner or later, my people will rid themselves of their internal and external enemies, that they will rise up as one in order to say no to colonialism, to brazen, dying colonialism, in order to win their dignity in a clean land. We are not alone. Africa, Asia, the free peoples and the peoples fighting for their freedom in all corners of the world will always be side by side with the millions of Congolese who will not give up the struggle while there is even one colonialist or colonialist mercenary in our country. To my sons, whom I am leaving, and whom perhaps I shall not see again, I want to say that the future of the Congo is splendid and that I expect from them, as from every Congolese, the fulfillment of the sacred task of restoring our independence and our sovereignty. Without dignity, there is no freedom. Without justice, there is no dignity. And without independence, there are no free men. Cruelty, insults, and torture can never force me to ask for mercy, because I prefer to die with head high, with indestructible faith and profound belief in the destiny of our country, than to live in humility and renounce the principles which are sacred to me. The day will come when history will speak, but it will not be the history which will be taught in Brussels, Paris, Washington, or the United Nations. It will be the history which will be taught in the countries which have won freedom from colonialism and its puppets. Africa will write its own history, and in both North and South it will be a history of glory and dignity. Do not weep for me. I know that my tormented country will be able to defend its freedom and its independence. Long live the Congo. Long live Africa. From Thysville Prison, Patrice Lumumba. And this letter came from Africa and Archives. Also has a beautiful family photo of Patrice, his wife, and their four children. It's very powerful. That sets the stage pretty well for what's going on right now <laughs> related to Niger. Yeah. And the, all these other countries where uh, the U.S. has had a presence and establishing bases, et cetera. We, we just got to stop. <laughs> yeah, you know, this this should not be happening in Niger right now. 
but it's still the French influence, the French ripping off their resources. And and I say the French, but you know, the French are just the the representative of the Western world, the Western capitalist world property. <clears throat> they have a pretty deep history of African colonies. Yes. The French do. And and the reason the United States doesn't is because we are a little bit late to that game of of carving up um Africa. Mm-hmm. But we're right there in the in the background. Yep. So Anyway, well, we'll keep our fingers on that. And I thought that was just a powerful letter to let people know that this is not anything new. The United States and the Western world has caused. But only the Africans can solve it. Get out of the way. Let them solve it. Yeah, we need to just leave. We need to remove our base. Mm -hmm. And we just need to leave. Yes, of course. And the Congo is still in the news. There's still... Endless mm-hmm. strife and war. Yeah. And, uh, of course, Lumumba was soon replaced by uh, America's choice, Mobutu. Oh, that's right. <laughs> Vicious, uh, corrupt dictator, you know, enriched himself beyond in all comprehension with the diamonds and the gold and okay. extractive wealth. The point is, Niger is thousands of miles away. But our tentacles, our U.S. militarism, is deeply embedded in their current problem. And yes, we can include the French and all the other so-called Western countries. If we really want the world to be a better place, we need to try something new. We need to try non-intervention, non-militarism. Okay, with that, it's time for our talk with Dr. Sam Coleman about more of what our militarism is doing. It's just what it's doing to us domestically. Hi, Sam. Thanks for taking a little bit of time out of your afternoon and uh, and join us. It says here that you're a PhD. MSW, what does that stand for? That stands for Master's in Social Work. Okay. And I've been an associate member of Vets for Peace for, I think, about 22 years now. Okay. I won't take up much time with this, but it was one of the more thrilling events of my life, gentlemen, um, was when the Iraq war was in preparation and people were gathering on street corners to say, don't do it. Right. Yep. And um, my younger son and I went to a street corner in Costa Mesa. And here were these people, I think one woman and about four men wearing T-shirts that said Veterans for Peace. And I was thrilled. I knew you guys had to exist. <laughs> you do. It's wonderful. One good thing about the Iraq War, if there was nothing, is that a lot of people finally decided the Veterans for Peace was for them. The same thing happened to me. <laughs> Isn't that something? There's nothing like a car accident to teach you about safe driving. Right. Well, that, yeah, that's a fact. Well, I I managed to find you uh, going around the barn several times because I forwarded a message that I'd gotten from Dr. Kelly Denton Borhog, who we had on the show last, oh, around last Armistice Day to talk about moral injury because she's trying to put together something with a lot of veterans. And I forwarded that to Mike Ferner, who then forwarded it to you. Right. Uh, And so here we are, because you are the 
coordinator or the discusser or the the facilitator for one of the groups in Veterans for Peace? Working group, yeah. That's a right. working group. Tell us a little bit about the working group, and then we'll start discussing. Okay. Well, the uh, working group has had a very spotty career, and um, I felt I could only give a part of the whole picture to it because it has a lot of potential, but also a lot of difficulty. I think if there's anything that the working group has done um, fairly consistently, it's to act as an information clearinghouse, hopefully a discussion board for different kinds of therapies. So if you ask, what does the military trauma working group do? It's more aspirational than actual. Let's put it that way. Okay. But done movie reviews that are relevant to uh, PTSD, moral injury, and suicidality. Um, the latest marvelous movie called This Is Not a War Story, di- written and directed by Tali Lugasi. And saying these, doing not just a regular aesthetic movie review, but to actually bring in a critique. Members of Veterans for Peace know better than anybody else. There's an awful lot of BS in movies about war. Seriously. And then when they take up the issue of veterans who've been wounded psychologically by their experience, then you really have something important to critique and pass along. I mean, last summer, there was a German television production crew that wanted to look at the psychological costs of being a drone pilot or operator. And thanks to Veterans for Peace, I got in touch with the anti-drone people and connected them to the German television production crew. Excellent. There you go. That couldn't have happened without the military trauma working group. You you have already done work on social class and trauma. Okay. The study of social class um, has been either suppressed or ignored in American academia since the 1950s. And that makes my job a lot more difficult. Why do you think that? Why, why, not that why do you think it makes it more difficult, but why has it been suppressed? Ah, okay. Uh, Thank you for that question. First thing is the Red Scare and McCarthyism in the 1950s. Anybody who started talking about social class and you really wouldn't dare use the words ruling class, Mm -hmm. that would, that would really get you tarred and feathered. Okay. So it's this anti communism in quotes, uh, purge of anything in academia that looked at social class. And uh, the results really were very debilitating. Then you go on further in the social sciences, you get the postmodernist wave in the 1990s where uh, it's radically relativist, where there is no such thing as truth. You analyze societies using the tools of literary criticism. And the only proof of whether something is actual or not is whether it, quote, resonates with you or not, as opposed to analysis, description, explanation, prediction. That's all out the window in much of academia. Even in social work, I never in my wildest dreams thought that I would encounter this kind of radical relativism from postmodernism in social work, but I got it. And then what you also get is the rise of identity politics. Identity politics to the extent that if anyone says, let's discuss the relationship between race and class, what they'd say is, oh, we solved that. And race won. And uh, good Lord. Yeah. Yeah. And the thing is, 
I know why a lot of people don't want to discuss it because they think, well, the white guys are in charge. And if we bring up class, they're going to start talking about how class is more important. And so we're going to get screwed again as black people and Latinos. Yeah. Okay. It's like explaining human physiology. Can I do it in five minutes? You know, however, when we get to veterans, if you folks were to ask me in my own research, what's the one study that really knocked me out, that really got me going on this? And that's the one that's the study of OIF, OEF veterans and their risk of suicide. And it was practically twice among enlisted people. Did you catch that one? I did, but for the audience, explain the OEF and OIF. I'm sorry. It's uh, the Afghanistan and Iraq wars. Operation Iraqi Freedom, which, by the way, was originally Operation Iraqi Liberation. But as soon as they realized the acronym was OAL, they scurried to change it. Oil, (laughs) oil, oil. (laughs) Yeah, really. And then OEF, Operation Enduring Freedom for Afghanistan. And we know how well that one worked out. To borrow a phrase from George Carlin. It's enduring. Yeah. So here are the veterans, and here's an epidemiological study. And those who were enlisted were twice as vulnerable to suicide as officers, okay? Roughly twice, okay? Remarkable Mm -hmm. statistic. Well, I myself am always eager to learn more about military culture, as I think everybody should. And by military culture, I mean military social science, too, the stratification, the power relationships, the whole works, okay? What are the differences between officers and enlisted people? And how does it mean that they'll have very different experiences? Evidently, it's a much rougher life for enlisted people. Somehow, the officers have more resources to deal with psychological trauma, okay? And I think we're just beginning to start asking those questions. And as in so many other things, the dynamics mirror what's going on in the larger American society as well. Okay. Can you go a little deeper into that? If Okay. Yeah. And here's where it's really amazing that we have as much good stuff about social class as we do, given the fact that much of academia, the, the social sciences, behavioral sciences, really haven't devoted the attention to it that they should. A lot of my writing recently, too, has been about the white working class, especially those men in the white working class who are middle-aged who've got deaths of despair. Familiar with that expression? Oh, let me be the first to tell you about it. There's a marvelous book by Anne um, Case and Angus Deaton. They're both uh, economists, Princeton University emeritus professors, and they did a study of what they call deaths of despair which is the combined deaths of suicide, drug overdose, and alcoholism. And they found a remarkable pattern. First of all, I can't overemphasize the extent of these deaths, particularly, again, among middle-aged white males whose education ended with high school. It's actually dragged down aggregate overall life expectancy in the United States. It's that bad. And... You say, what's going on here? Well, you want to summarize it. A lot of it is deindustrialization, globalization, and automation. Rust Belt, people who had jobs, really good paying union jobs, Mm -hmm. where they had a future, where they could go to a place where they felt needed. I grew up in Pittsburgh. Well, there you go. I know. And it's just completely pulled out from under their feet. Now, the ramifications of that, too, 
for those who are veterans are enormous. Those who joined the military because there weren't other options in terms of a job or career or some way to structure their life, give it meaning, get their family's health insurance, okay? There are several directions we could go with this, you know, where um, we could talk about, for example, a bridge with psychology. How is child raising for the working class different from child raising for, say, the professional and managerial elite? And I talk about this stuff at risk of oversimplifying, but simply because we need more research, but even based on the research we've got now, working class and middle class people grow up very differently. And as a matter of fact, there are some strengths to working class personality formation. And for that, I think about Joan Williams, really interesting person. She's a legal specialist. She's married to a working class guy, and she wrote a wonderful book called White Working Class, How to Overcome Class Cluelessness. It's a remarkable contribution. These are people who have a really strong work ethic. And the problem is their employers don't have a strong pay ethic. (laughs) Welcome to America. Yeah. I mean, this is ever since the late 1970s. I mean, the economist Robert Reich pointed this out, as have some others, the period from the late 1940s to the late 70s, this roughly 30-year period, this was actually the great affluence. This is what you and I were raised in, where underneath it all, even though we had our struggles, we knew there'd be a job for us somewhere. You bet. Right? We knew there'd be reasonable stability. We didn't have to deal with some kind of labor platform or algorithm that uh, measured our performance down to the minute and only brought us in for a couple of hours and squeezed the juices out of us and then kicked us out without any benefits. One income could afford a household. Well, there you go. There you go. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And unfortunately, the professional and managerial elite, they aren't into this. They, They aren't in touch with this. They don't understand it. They probably don't want to understand it. They think that women entered the workplace... Uh, because they at last had a chance to become professionals. Finally, your daughter can be the CEO of Apple. Well, that's true too, but women actually entered the workplace as part of an attempt to stave off a falling standard of living because men were earning less, because they had to rely on credit cards more, Mm -hmm. because they had to work longer hours. Those were the responses to this flattening out of purchasing power among working people in the United States. Okay. Now, this is going to also affect someone's motives for joining the military. Mm -hmm. You know, what I'd love to see is I'd love to see studies of cohorts of men and women who entered the military in different eras or 10-year periods. Maybe single out some groups. One group that fascinates me is the immediate post-September 11th group. These were the idealists. These are the ones who maybe had other careers, other ideas, but joined the military because they were so appalled by what happened to the World Trade Center. And so where do they go? They get sent off to Iraq. And maybe killed by friendly fire, like uh, I'm trying to think of Thank his you. name, the, uh, the Arizona Cardinal who left, yeah. left the professional football. Pat Tillman. Pat Tillman. Pat Tillman's a great example. I mean, there's a guy who was sincere. He left a lucrative career in football because he believed in what he was doing. It wouldn't happen to him. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's so much more that the general public has to be aware of and told about. For example, burn pits. Now, Vietnam War, of course, there were burn pits. But I had a mechanic 
a great mechanic who was a Vietnam War combat vet. And I could tell just every once in a while, you know, he had this really short fuse. And I was in his office once paying for my car. And there was a part that was supposed to come in that was promised him. And he got mad as all. And what he screamed into the phone was this. I'll have you burning bleep with the gooks. Good gracious. Yeah. And that's when I thought, oh, yeah, that's what they did with feces then. Burn pits. Mm -hmm. Okay. Lovely. I only learned recently that the burn pits in Iraq and probably in Afghanistan were the size of one or two football fields. And they reflect also very, very inefficient, wasteful use of resources because those burn pits had perfectly usable equipment in them, some of it with heavy metals, you know, that vaporized when it was burned. And so finally, there is some attention to this, okay, hard-won attention for medical care for the ones who've been around burn pits, but they never should have been exposed to this in the first place. Right. And if they have other forms of disillusionment, other forms of harassment, that that compounds the problem greatly. I mean, let me give you one more example, too, uh, about an emotional adjustment problem that's compounded by a physical problem. As you might know, one of the biggest problems uh, that combat veterans have and others with extensive military training is loss of hearing. You know, you don't always get to wear something on your ears where you're firing off those big guns or even the smaller ones for that matter. Hearing loss greatly complicates cognitive function. So if you've got mild TBI and hearing loss together, that's really double trouble. I know I've wandered off from the issue of class, but gosh, folks, (laughs) as you know, there's 2,000 things going wrong, 2,000 different abuses, 2,000 different problems needing to be addressed. One of the things is enlisted service members were and probably are almost twice as likely as officers to to die by suicide. How about that? And that one could take a lot of exploring. If you were to ask me what's going on, all I could do is give you a whole series of educated hunches. Okay. How does education help protect against moral injury and other psychological problems? Okay. Let's say one aspect of education is a certain kind of self-awareness, a certain kind of skepticism, a certain kind of sense of self as an agent, a certain kind of self-confidence that working class folks may not have. They can get it. For example, warrior writers reading so-called bibliotherapy. You can read even if you're a member of any social class. Fortunately, we still have literacy where you can come back to your issues by putting yourself in the shoes of others. A lot of working class upbringing leads uh, young men and women, men in particular, to seek out a protector. And, you know, we've seen this, you know, Sarge comes to the house of the guy who's just, you know, enlisted and tells the parents, okay, he's going to Iraq, but I'll be with him and I'll protect him. You probably thought of scenarios like that, right? Uh, He has no business saying that. None. Because he can't do it. But the working class kid is caught up in this. And that is going to make the disillusionment all the more bitter and traumatic. Okay, I mean, this is classical Jonathan Shea moral injury. Because moral injury, there are two definitions, you know. Yep. One of them is going against what you most deeply, profoundly believe you are. 
you know, through doing an atrocity or witnessing it. And the other one is to be profoundly betrayed by someone who has life and death control over you. Okay. Mm -hmm. And so if I'm hearing you right, it's that working class, that non-educated, not meaning ignorant or stupid, but just not the opportunity to get an education. Thank you for that critical distinction. They are not more ignorant than anybody else. It's purely a matter of access to a critical resource. And that critical resource is education. I'm so glad you brought that up for clarification. Because, you know, there are working class virtues. I mean, they often don't like their middle class managerial bosses because they see them BSing. Uh, They see them kissing up to people who don't deserve it. They see a lot of insincerity and they can smell that stuff. You know, that's a working class virtue. A working class, another working class virtue is to uh, hold down on the verbiage and start acting. Let's see some action here. Let's get something done. So I've seen working class members of groups, you know, when somebody gets up like me and starts pontificating, they'll stop me and say, well, what do we actually do next? And I thought, thank you, working class members. (laughs) There is an organization called Class Matters. Betsy Leander Wright, terrific. And she's written about this, about different movements, okay? Action-oriented political movements uh, that rely on cross-class collaboration. And it's not always easy because there are different backgrounds, different styles, different assumptions. But if we can recognize each other's strengths and complement them, I mean, I see this in Veterans for Peace as well. And I'm always kind of torn, you know, there is a liability to bringing up the issue of class, especially for someone like me, because it sounds like I'm an elitist. I can point to the, you know, the pitfalls and the weaknesses of my class. I can point to the strengths and virtues of the working class. Kind of rambling, but I think it reflects the fact we're in such an early stage of asking these questions. Because we've been deprived of the analytical tools to really do a good job. You are listening to our discussion with Dr. Sam Coleman of the Military Trauma Working Group of Veterans for Peace. So let me ask you, I I just got done with a moral injury group session, 16 weeks here in Nashville, and it was fine. But, well, here's the question. So what you might be saying is that the working class enlisted type folks are more susceptible to be disillusioned yeah just because they don't have that extra extra education so they are more susceptible to looking at the ads on tv looking at the flags draped over the football field looking at the flyovers and say wow this is great i can do that whereas if you're a little bit more educated you you recognize the hype, the manipulation, the propaganda, the bullshit. You nailed it. And there's another element here, too. And it's, I risk losing subtlety, but I love a particular vignette. I was in a local glo- grocery store and I was passing a pile of oranges, you know, bulk sales. Here came along a young mother with a an infant, little toddler, let's say, it was in the, you know, this arrangement where they sit in the shopping cart. And the cart pulled up to the oranges, and this little darling chubby hand reaches out for an orange. The mother takes the hand with the orange and smiling 
says orange. That's an orange. And the kid repeats her. Okay? I swear it, fellas. Same stack of oranges. About a week later, a working class mother with a toddler about the same age. Card is right next to the oranges. You know, don't ask me to go into this. How do I know she's working class? You know, but we've, we, we learn these various indicators. Are you ready for this? There's a little toddler reaching out. She slaps the hand. The overall message is don't cause trouble. Keep your head low. And you know what? For later in life, if you're working class, that's adaptive. And there's something else that goes with it, too. I don't know what's going on in her life, but I bet she's got a lot more stress than that middle class mother. And in fact, there was some fascinating research that was done on child raising styles and stress, where the working class child raising style is more directive. And you can imagine what that word means. It's like, don't do this, do that, you know, or I'll hold your hand and we'll, we'll get it done, as opposed to try this. Oh, it doesn't work? That's bad. Well, try that. Where you cultivate a child's independent sense of exploration and agency. That particular controlled experiment was done with middle-class mothers and two-year-old kids, two-and-a-half-year-old kids who were assembling blocks. It was just putting blocks together, and the task was to make a tower out of the blocks, something like that. Okay, you with me? Yep. The mothers who were working, middle-class, but they were working, they were under a severe time schedule, were more directive. They didn't have the time to let the kid fail. They became pressured working-class. And the kid's bound to carry that, where you join the army and there's something reassuring about somebody telling you what to do all the time. You're pre-adapted to it. And again, it's not because you're less intelligent. It's because you've been conditioned for it. That goes along with what you have in your slideshow about the army ideology, uh, the army family, the ideology of family. Thank you. Explain that a little bit, but also... Bring in the sexual trauma, the the problem that the ladies have. This is uh, something that, um, forgive me, a senior moment here where I can't remember the name of the documentary, but it was one a good documentary some years ago. I think it was called The Invisible War uh, that showed the extent of sexual harassment and rape in the military. And an army therapist, I believe it was, said it's it's all the more excruciating for young women who believe they were part of a family. And you get that, you know, the army is your family, you know, so the sense of betrayal is far, far deeper. Now, there's a wonderful historian of modern Japan, John Dower, who is an expert on World War II in the Pacific and the years leading up to it and the years afterward. And the government of Japan under the emperor and the imperial system in the 1930s, you know, when they're becoming more and more militarized, gave all of this stuff about all of us being a family with the emperor as, of course, the benevolent father. And Dower wrote, this is beautiful, he wrote, the family is the most benign metaphor for inequality. The family is the most benign metaphor for inequality. So you're the little kid, but we're doing this because we're all in this together and we have your best interests in heart, okay? And then someone gets raped and finds out, no, as a matter of fact, that's not the case at all. So that makes the pain of the betrayal all the more intense. That relates to um, Judith Lewis Herman's um, category of complex PTSD, you know, that mm. uh, it's not just one incident, 
it's a number of incidents. Right. And the people who are your authority figures and your protectors aren't there to protect you or worse yet, they're perpetrators. Here's the thing. Here's where class comes into it again. There's a great aphorism among sociologists. Uh, Poor men make bad husbands. And I also want to explore more of that for myself. But uh, if you have a family uh, that is economically very insecure, the wife, when she can, brings in more money than the husband, you get a number of these associated pathologies in marital instability. You get uh, these combined families of children living together by different parents. You add all of the frustrations of life outside, you get an increased incident of what's called uh, adverse childhood experiences, ACEs. People at the lower end of the working class are more vulnerable to those. I mean, there's, there's nothing like a really stable income in a meaningful job, can be one partner or both, but they aren't subjected to excessive working hours, they aren't subjected to excessive stress, they aren't subjected to excessive insecurity. They're the ones who make the best parents. They're the ones who have the resources to create a good environment for raising children. And so you're going to get a number of people in late adolescence, early adulthood from the working class who are carrying the burden of these ACEs, these adverse childhood experiences. And statistically speaking, it shows right out, they're the ones who are the most vulnerable to all of the psychological insults that military experience inflicts on them. About half of the people that were in my moral injury group went through all the trouble that they had as kids. Isn't that something? The hell of it is, and I think I can use hell in your radio program. Hell yes. This is, this is the gift that keeps on giving. They're going to recapitulate that in the treatment of their own children. So they're starting off at a tremendous disadvantage. You talked about the civil-military divide. Oh, yes. Yeah, you know something? I just, thank you very much. I just finished reading a marvelous, marvelous book by Norman Solomon, War Made Invisible. And Jim, I'm so glad you brought up this issue of the civil-military cultural social divide. Uh, Andrew Basevich has written about that too. And Norman Solomon says, you know, we've got to have veterans and non-veterans talking with each other more. Well, how do we do it? And how do we do it right? I don't now, know. Yeah, well, this is it. Uh, but you're the people that asked to get the ball rolling. Uh, there was an attempt at that by, um, I'm forgetting her first name, forgive me, Kaplan, wrote a book called When Johnny and Jane Come Marching Home. And she herself is a clinician, psychologist, and she knows the value of establishing a therapeutic alliance, you know, just purely the value of talking and genuinely listening to each other. And if veterans and non-veterans did that more, that's one of the paths to healing. Now, that's easier said than done. And I've thought about this a lot. And I think it's a major avenue for putting together meaningful programs. But you don't just say, okay, you guys get together in a room and talk to each other. Uh, The real world doesn't work that way. And as a matter of fact, if I were a veteran, I might think for the average Joe or Jane out on the street, why do you want to talk with me? What's your agenda? Where are you getting out of it? Maybe the solution is in 
shared goals, common ground for something very different, like joining an, a local environmental reform group, like joining a local uh, mental health reform group that involves both self-care and access to therapists. Because we do have to figure in the role of the therapist here somewhere. They do have the training for a very, very special relationship that is both supportive and yet also critical, where they can hold a mirror to the client, in this case, the veteran, and say, you know, I think what you're doing right now isn't getting you anywhere. Or did you notice that you're doing this? And how do you think that affects your loved ones? Times like this, where the timing is just right to actually move in and get them to reflect. And only somebody who's a caring professional with that kind of insight and training can do it. I mean, there was a movement, again, thank you, postmodernists, where it was very much in the vogue for clinicians to say to a client, I don't know anything more than you do. You have the answer within yourself. Well, if I were the client, I would say, well, why the hell am I wasting my time with you? (laughs) (laughs) The trick is, at, at what point and in which way do we get that kind of informed insight? At what point in the veteran's journey does it make sense? How do we offer that to veterans as part of a smorgasbord? You know, you got all these goodies laid out and some of them, they aren't going to fit your taste or they may have made sense before, but they don't now. So we got a lot to talk about. And unless I talk about this with veterans who know so much more about this than I do, I'm only building a bridge halfway across the river. But boy, it's got a lot of potential. Because every day there are more and more people in the United States who are suffering from the same things veterans are. Well, that's, I think that's one of the keys that this is not just a veteran issue anymore. I think it's an American issue. Right. Loud and clear. That's, you put that so beautifully, Jim. You really did. What would you recommend to folks that are listening to the show and are starting to think about things? What would you recommend to kids considering the military? What would you consider about uh, moms and dads? You see their kids coming back from the military and they, they there's problems going on. Just kind of where should we go from here type, type of stuff? Wow. Could we get together again? <laughs> You, I mean, yeah, we just, can. But it's the whole array. And the thing is that there are different parts of the country, just this crazy patchwork of resources and people. So much of something that would make sense in one community would sound like something from outer space to another community. So I'm sorry, I wish I could come up with some nifty things that would help. Perhaps through Veterans for Peace, we could create a new portal that is entry level. I'll tell you one thing veterans have, still have a very strong moral voice where people Mm. listen. I mean, I've got to share this with you folks. I've got a Veterans for Peace uh, grocery bag that I use. Nice. And uh, I was at a grocery store and, you know, I always like to chat up the checkout clerks if they're amenable. She said, oh, are you a veteran? And I said, well, not exactly. I was a conscientious objector. I did two and a half years of alternate service. And she said, well, that's kind of a veteran. You know, I won't charge you any sales tax on these items. <laughs> yes, way to go. And yet I don't deserve it. I'm not really a veteran. You know, I'm a fellow traveler. I'm a veteran sympathizer. Yeah. <laughs> but you know what that shows is people really do still honor veterans. And we really do have a voice, you know. 
Yeah. And um, if we use it wisely, I mean, that's a resource and a source of authority that nobody else in this country has. By the way, it's also getting dangerous because so many veterans are going for the Trump school. Ooh, seriously. And I know we're, we're short of time, but I got to tell you about this. That there's some remarkable research by two political scientists, Kreiner and Shen. And what they found was that when Hillary Clinton was up against uh, Donald Trump, some critical counties in swing states, many of them Democratic counties, went for Trump. And what they found was the critical ingredient in the switch in those counties, are you ready for this, was Iraq and Afghanistan war veterans. Really? And they and went they, to Trump. Yeah. Listen, our veterans are loose cannons. So many of them, they know something's wrong, but they don't have the power to interpret it, understand it, and act on it. So they're lashing out. Yeah. You know how many uh those um, insurgents, the uh, January 6th invasion of the Capitol, how many of them were veterans? How many? Well, tell you what, back to Norman Solomon's book, War Made Invisible. He's got a whole chapter devoted to economic and social costs at home, the psychological costs of our never-ending wars. He lays it out. How many of those people were veterans? Just in, Here's my answer. I don't have an absolute number, but just enough to make it really scary. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Not only veterans, but active duty. <laughs> yeah, yeah. thank you. Yeah. And I guess that's because veterans see they've only been taught one way to react to things. Well, they know, they know they've been paying a price, a lot of them. Um, it's remarkable to be separated from your loved ones, to go out on deployments where you're told that you are liberating people and they don't want you there. The temperature, the stink, the whole nine yards, you know. What was it all worth? What was it worth it? What was it for? And exactly. nobody's stepping in to nobody's stepping in to answer it. We our two major political parties are war parties, soft war party and the hard war party. Mm-hmm. And they rotate back and forth. Yeah. Well, this is it. If you want to protest what's going on, you vote for the other party. <laughs> yeah. right. We can't walk away from electoral politics. At some point or another, we have to articulate with power. The question is how to do it and when. Because this twiddly-dee, twiddly-dumb stuff isn't getting us anywhere. So that's one other thing I encourage people to do is to talk more about what you can do besides simply voting or giving money to Democrats, something like that. Because you folks, you've been doing that for decades. You know, The definition of insanity is doing something that doesn't work and doing it again. Yep. But at the same time, you can't and shouldn't withdraw from it. And forget armed insurrection. That never seems to work out well. I mean, the ones with the guns who knows how to know how to use them best are the ones we don't want in power. <laughs> <laughs> Elections are the enemy of movements. And yet, if you don't have movements, you aren't going to reform the whole process. It's it's the game is still worth the candle. That's excellent. The game is still worth the candle. Oh, if people that are listening want to get in touch with you, is there a way that they can get in touch with you? It would be through the um, webpage for our working group at Veterans for Peace National. Military Trauma Working Group. Go to VFP National and then pull down menu for our work. Great. You know, we have been concentrated on trying to talk to people about um, avoiding the nuclear holocaust oh. the apocalypse that's coming down the road that uh you know and it, it it's just a matter of who's going to win the climate or, or nuclear armageddon really <laughs> our chapter held a uh, an observance 
of Hiroshima on August 6th at the Huntington Beach Pier. And it was actually pretty well attended, you know. Uh, and I myself, as a Japan specialist, uh, am working on educational materials to counteract the argument that we had to drop the bomb in order to end the war. Mm -hmm. uh, and that thing has several pieces to it. Um, Peter Kuznick, the uh, historian who worked with Oliver Stone on his series on the real history of the United States, he's got some great stuff in terms of international relations and the Russians. But my piece is going to be this uh, idea that the Japanese wouldn't surrender otherwise. Um, and as a matter of fact, in the movie um, Oppenheimer, it's, um, by the way, for whatever faults you may find in it, it's a remarkable movie. And it's opened up this discussion. People who otherwise wouldn't think about these damn nuclear weapons right. are not talking about it thanks to that movie. The elite at that time said, oh, the Japanese won't surrender. Well, it's my job as an anthropologist to say no. In fact, we did our show last week on that topic. Yeah, ah, that was part of it. I yeah. want to listen yeah. to that. I noticed yeah, that's the unnecessary tragedies of Hiroshima and Nagasaki. Yeah. And I told the group, I said, you know, I learned a really interesting word recently. I love it. The word is prefigurative. I got it out <laughs> in Herman Solomon's book. Okay. And that is that you're looking at something that you think is an, an isolated historical incident that you argue about on the face of it, but it has all sorts of repercussions for the future. Yes. And the basic idea behind using that monstrous weapon to kill an, a whole civilian population, the implicit idea is, well, if we're presented again with the same conditions, we're justified in using the bombs on a big civilian population again. That's what's at stake in this argument. So you guys are doing you guys are doing God's work. How else can I say it? And I thought that last scene in uh, Oppenheimer was powerful in that way. Where they yeah, when people even notice that. Main reaction that is self-sustaining and eventually destroys us. And, and then Oppenheimer says, "I think we did." Yeah, I've got to see that movie again. But if I remember, in the last visual, the last remaining seconds of the movie, in the background behind Oppenheimer are ICBMs. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. I was right. Yeah. Very All good. Right. Thank you so much. Thank you yes. so much. All right. Take care. Take care, Sam. Bye now. Bye. That was our remarkable discussion with Dr. Sam Coleman. And remember, you can get in touch with Sam by going to the Veterans for Peace website, veteransforpeace.org, then clicking on our work. Then underneath that, working groups. Within that, you will find military trauma. Click on there and you'll find Sam's email address. It's actually easier than what I explained. After all, even if you were not in the military, you may be suffering and may be able to relate. And while you're on the Veterans for Peace website, don't forget to register for the convention. With that, Harvey and I completely neglected to ask Sam for a song. And so Harvey recommended two, and I picked one of them. And it is from friend of the show, Jason Moon, because it so relates to what lots of veterans bring home. Here is Jason Moon and trying to find my way home. How do they expect a man to do the things that I have? Come back and be the same. Things are done that I regret The things I've seen I won't forget For this life and so many more And I'm trying
trying to find my way home. Child inside me, long dead and gone, somewhere between lost and alone, trying to find my way home. And I've seen another side, another slice of the pie that didn't seem too fair to me. People who did not deserve the sufferings that they incurred. Freedom ought to be free, and I'm trying to find my way home. Child inside me is long dead and gone, somewhere between, lost and alone. Trying to find my way home. Whether we lose or win, I'm so sick and tired of the spin. Don't think I can take any more. If the truth must stay in disguise, hidden beneath all the lies, then what were we fighting for? And I'm trying to find my way home. The child inside me is long dead and gone, somewhere between, lost and alone. Trying to find my way home. Daddy's went away. He's come back and he ain't the same as the man that you used to know. And I'm trying to find my way home. The child inside me is long dead and gone, somewhere between, lost and alone. I'm trying to find my way home. Sitting here with time to kill, staring out my windowsill, trying so hard to forget. Time I may forgive myself, but history repeats itself and burdens my soul with regrets. And I'm trying to find my way home. Child inside me, long dead and gone, somewhere between. Lost and alone, trying to find my way home. Lately, it's occurred to me it's hard to fight an enemy that lives inside of your head. Spend my life in between the sleepless nights and the bad dreams. Think I might rather be dead. Trying to find my way home. Child inside me, 
Long dead and gone Somewhere between Lost and alone Trying to find my way home So how do they expect a man To see the things that I have Come back and be the same